It's Monday, August 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool 1, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Chief Investment Officer Andy Cross. Happy Monday, gents. Howdy. Hi, guys. Kicking off August, um, earnings palooza. Starting to wind. Starting Starting to to wind wind down. But we we will talk a little bit of earnings um, in the form of Berkshire Hathaway. We're also going to talk a lot of media. There are some very interesting things happening in the world of newspaper companies, in terms of the cable companies, and and a story from the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that you have just got to read. Uh, but we will start with Berkshire Hathaway. Second quarter profit up 46%. Jason, we were chatting a little bit before taping here. Kind of a a nice quarter, but not a mind-blowing awesome quarter, even though just a headlight, wow, profit up 46%. But you know, you look into the numbers, it's really driven by the investments that they're making. You're happy if you're not a Berkshire if you're a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder, but you're not doing cartwheels today. Yeah, I mean, I'm a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder, and I'm very happy with the way the, the company continues to chug along. I mean, operating earnings are up about 5%. Book value grew for the quarter. They certainly bested a uh, most of the the expectations out there. Um, I did find it interesting to see. Now, Geico continues to perform really well. Uh, they wrote, it looks like, 12% more premiums, and that also kind of goes in line with what we saw from Travelers Insurance a few weeks back, as Travelers was starting to compete more on pricing in that auto insurance game. So, you know, I, I, I tend to look at something like that when I see something like a Travelers chasing business, especially in the auto uh, insurance market. I mean, that's that's a bit scary to me because... Having worked in the auto insurance game for a little while, it, it's kind of a racket. I mean, I don't really trust what's going on there. Uh, I think that you know, Guy, uh, Geico has done a very good job uh, through the years of really uh, solidifying their their sort of spot in that market. Um, so I, w- I would have to give the upper hand to them. But yeah, it was, it was a good quarter. I like the fact that you were involved in a racket for a little while, and now <laughs> that's exactly now you're right. on the straight and narrow. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. Member of the of the Motley Fool I made investment it, team. I cut a deal. <laughs> um, when we talk about the big consumer technology companies, Apple, Samsung, et cetera, uh, the conversation often at this time of year f- tends to eventually end up at what is the next device as we get closer and closer to the holiday season? What is the next big thing for them? With Berkshire Hathaway, eventually I feel like we, all, we need to at least touch on the whole notion of the next big acquisition. I don't know to what extent. I didn't look at the look into the uh, the release from Berkshire Hathaway. I don't know to what extent uh, Warren Buffett referenced his elephant gun and and the desire to make another big acquisition. But when you think about how much cash they have, when you think about the the growth opportunities, and frankly, the track record, the the recent track record, which has been really great. I mean, we talk about Bob Iger at Disney and his track record with Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars. But you look at the major acquisitions and deals that that Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway have executed over the last six, seven years, and it's a pretty pretty great track record. But when you think about that... What- yeah, I mean, there, there are two, two businesses that I, I continue to feel like are ideal sort of Berkshire Hathaway acquisitions. Uh, the one I've, I've, I think I've, I've said a number of times was one of his McCormick Spice Factory. Yeah. McCormick, uh, to me, is just very uh, Berkshire-esque in a lot of ways, very very consistent, very reliable, uh, sort of you know, a little bit in line with that Heinz thing. I mean, you'd be buying into a pretty stellar brand and in uh, and, and a well-run company. And the other one that you know I've been following the company for a while, I, I added I added it to my real money portfolio back when I was running that a couple of years ago. It was Ecolab, 
which is a company that essentially you know installs all of this equipment in restaurants and prisons and government facilities and things like that to help uh, the, the sanitary and the hygiene uh, sort of side of those things. So you know it was never really a play for Ecolab to be based on unemployment so much because regardless, the restaurants are staying open yeah. and they have codes that they have to adhere to. And once they get those, yeah, once they get that equipment installed, then they sign these nice long-term deals to replenish with all of the uh, you know the consumables that go along with those with those machines. So Ecolab and, and uh, you know I, I think that Ecolab was actually. There was some speculation back there uh, a little while back that, that Ecolab was actually one of the, the companies that Buffett had his eye on. That was never never confirmed, but uh, I, I still believe it was. It seems to be a very Berkshire-esque type company as well. You know, fascinating. Morgan Housel has an article on Fool.com today about Berkshire Hathaway and the fact that they have – Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have grown the book value 10 percent per year since the 2000 or so. Now, that doesn't – as Morgan says, that doesn't really sound like a whole lot, but considering – that the S&P had grown like 3% per right. year for a company the size of Berkshire. And the fact that it is still growing ber- ber- book value at a very healthy clip, which is the value of its assets minus its, its liabilities divided by you know, the uh, number of shares outstanding is really impressive. And it just goes to speak to the type of culture and business that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have built at Berkshire Hathaway. A collection of assets, private, uh, complete companies that it, it owns – Public equities, securities, and all kinds of invest- investments, including the insurance operations. Uh, one investment that Buffett has made uh, a few times over the last few years that uh, I think has some people, myself included, uh, scratching their head a little bit is when he goes out and buys a newspaper. He Berkshire Hathaway owns the Omaha World Herald. Uh, they recently bought, uh, I think, a paper in, in the southern part of Virginia um, and yeah. newspapers very much in the news over the weekend because 20 years ago, the New York Times bought the Boston Globe for $1.1 billion. And over the weekend, the New York Times sold the Boston Globe uh, to an ownership group that includes, among other people's, uh, John Henry, who's the owner of the Red Sox. So now the guy who owns the Red Sox now owns the Boston Globe. $70 million. I mean, you can't... You- this is this is like theater. You can't write this. I mean, the whole go back to the whole Babe Ruth, New York Yankees, Boston yeah. Red Sox trade this. Then the Globe buy the New York Times buys the Globe. Buys now the they Globe. sell it to an owner or to a person who's a part owner of the uh, Boston Red Sox. I mean, like fascinating. And the fact that they bought it for more than a billion dollars originally, right? The New York Times and now out. they're selling it for seventy million. Crazy. I mean, it's just it's just a testament to the type of world that we live in with electronic media. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago when we went to the Berkshire meeting, and, and that was one of the questions: was just what is what is your what what is his what attraction to newspapers? <laughs> you know, because we look at those and think, wow, this is just sort of like a dying business, and it, it's not really a dying business as much as it's just a, a, an industry that's in extreme transformation. And if you look back to when New York Times actually acquired Boston Globe, I think it was 1993. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, internet was just really kind of. Entering the fray there. I mean, I, I remember graduating from college in '95, and, and email was still a very novel concept at that time uh, for a lot of people. So I think that you know, over the course of time here, we've seen this industry change significantly. And the New York Times is a great example of a company that probably has a little bit too many you know, pokers in the fire, so to speak. I mean, their sales are down over thirty percent in the last five years. They're you know in a net debt position, and they're really kind of just spread very thin. Uh, the one thing that Buffett always said about newspapers, though, was on the local level, 
that was the attraction there. And so when he bought the, the Buffalo newspaper, for example, and, and you know when when this you know, the Boston Globe gets sold. It's something that's very attractive for a local market because if you're looking to get information or news on your local market, then that's the place to go. And so I think from that perspective, it makes sense at least for this acquisition of the Boston Globe because it's going to cover Boston local news. It's going to be a real Boston sort of deal. Uh, and whether it's you know newspaper, a physical newspaper, or whether it's uh, you know a web page, I mean that information and that coverage is going to need to be there in some capacity. And so I think it makes sense for both parties involved. And I. I actually wouldn't be surprised at all to see this to see this end up pretty well. Well, the the local ad market, which was the big driver of of small town businesses, actually large business, large newspapers as well too, but certainly small ones, has been so disrupted by the likes of Google Ads, uh, Yelp, Facebook, all the social media that now you can get access to that information that you could only get from your local newspaper. I have friends who work at our local newspaper back in Pennsylvania, and they're like, listen, if, you, if you're a local business person, you were advertising in the local newspaper. Right. That's, that was the only game in town, even more than like the local you know, television station. That has really changed over the last few years, and you're seeing it in this kind of deal, the type of write-down that the New York Times has had to either – if they actually took one, I, I, I don't know. But the fact that they're selling this for such a – different price than what they originally bought it for is really pretty um, amazing uh, to speak about where the money is getting spent in the local market. And we're also starting to see newspapers, particularly the larger ones, really attempt to branch out in what they're providing. I think today, uh, also in Boston, the Boston Herald, which is the, the competing paper to the Boston Globe, is launching a digital radio station within their newsroom. So there, the Boston Herald, you can get it delivered to your doorstep, but starting today, I believe, there's also 12 hours of programming that they're going to have every day. We're seeing it with video. Locally here with the Washington Post, they've invested a, a, just a ton of money in their video operations that are still very much in their infancy. So it's, it, I, I feel like, uh, to your point, Jason, I feel like this can work out uh, but I also feel like it's a, a pretty fine line that these media organizations are going to have to walk. And it's it's just a, a, a really tricky balance between um, how do we balance our newspaper revenue versus our video revenue versus our uh, banner ads on the website, that sort of thing. So we'll continue to watch it. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend – um, and again, we don't we don't take many victory laps uh, uh, on this podcast, but we're going to take one right now because uh, in the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal, uh, an article by Mark Hulbert, uh, who's a guy who for the better part of the last three decades, um, Mark Hulbert is the guy uh, behind Hulbert Financial Digest, which has tracked newsletter performance, uh, investment newsletter performance for really the last 25 years or so. Um, and the article with, under the headline, Look Who's on Top Now, uh, featuring a photo of David and Tom Gardner, co-founders of The Motley Fool, from 1998. Kind of a throwback photo. Um, but it's about the fact that the top three spots in the Hulbert Financial Digest uh, five-year ranking, so the, the best, the top three performing investment newsletters over the last five years, as tracked by Mark Hulbert, and he's tracking hundreds of them. The top three are Motley Fool investment 
newsletter services, uh, Inside Value, which is uh, run by our own Uncle Joe Mager, uh, Rule Breakers, uh, which David Gardner and his team runs, and then Stock Advisor, um, also fronted by David and Tom. But you guys have worked uh, a lot on these. And Andy, you're... Uh, you're all through this article because you actually got a chance to talk with Hulbert. Yeah. He interviewed you for this. And um, uh, the thing – we talked a, a little bit about this before taping. But the, th- the thing that strikes me beyond the fact that, hey, it's great that we've got the top three spots. But what I'm struck by is that it's three very different strategies. Yeah. We have hundreds of thousands of people who subscribe to our different services. But there are definitely people who come in and say, I'm looking for growth stocks, and that's where a service like Rule Breakers fits perfectly. Or they're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, maybe they're a little bit older, and they're looking to just get steady, uh, safer uh, value plays, and that's where a service like Inside Value yeah. comes into play. Um, those, on the surface, it seems like that shouldn't work. It shouldn't work that those two strategies are executed so well that they're in the top three. But um, uh, I don't know. It's 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 a pretty amazing uh, track record. Yeah, it is, uh, Chris. Thank you. Um, and uh, and Mark reached out to us. I think um, through the Wall Street Journal and his editors had seen that the the services at top and wondering what is going on at the Motley Fool, given the fact that the tactics of those three services and the strategies are a little bit different. How is that possible? And and of course, with a, with any of these articles, um, you know, uh, there was a lot left on the cutting room floor. Uh, sure. Mark and I had a, we talked for a long time, and we emailed back and forth, and 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 he said uh, he included a lot of that, but but um, but a lot was left on the cutting room floor. And the one one thing I was trying to um, you know articulate to a, to a, to some extent is that. If you're familiar with the Graham and Dodds article that Warren Buffett wrote, I believe back in the 60s, talking about the, this mythical town of Graham and Doddsville and the folks who – the investors who make up this town and they all came from the, from the, um, from the uh, studying of Ben Graham um, and his book, Security Analysis. And these investors had gone on and this dozen investors or so have gone on to these you know, magical returns um, over time. And I said, well, we are trying to, for many ways, that here at the Motley Fool on the investing team, trying to build our own version of Graham and Doddsville, but it's around business-focused investing, um, not so much deep value investing or, or even really super uber growth investing or whatever it may be. We are basically trying to build um, a, 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 um, an expertise and a skill set in identifying these great businesses, and furthermore, really trying to articulate how to invest in these businesses and invest in them over the long term. Because these businesses, if you do that, and you let the businesses accrue those earnings and cash flows that they are capable of doing, and investors recognize those, you're going to see some outstanding returns. And that's exactly what Tom and David have done at Stock Advisor for more than a decade. David's done it at uh, in Rule Breakers when he tries to find these very innovative, disrupting upstarts. And uh, what Joe, a lot of what Joe has done at Inside Value um, and his team in finding stocks, and he overlays this patina of, of valuation on there, but he still has the likes of Amazon and Ebay's of in there as well because he sees value there. But mostly it's focusing on the businesses really and buying those businesses run by smart people for the long term. Uh, I should also mention 
also in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, Jason Moser, you were <laughs> there was an article about getting your kids investing. Yeah, um, can you just share just a, a, a couple of, of points on that? Just because you're you've talked about your daughters before and, and sure. really getting them involved, and uh, it is one of those things. It's interesting that uh, I was talking uh, maybe a month or so ago with Brian Richards. Um, who was our managing editor at Fool.com for years, and now he's he's heading up part of our international team. Um, but we were talking about financial education and the push to get it into school systems and that sort of thing, and that now we're starting to see the effects of teaching high school kids. And one of the, unfortunately, one of the learnings that, uh, is, is that a word? Is that, one of the it's things, a word for today. It's a word for the day. One of the things we've, we're starting to discover, unfortunately, is that it might be a little too late um, to teach kids in high school. Uh, and you, the earlier you can get to kids to teach them about money, to teach them about investing and saving and that sort of thing, the better off you're going to be. And that's something you're doing with your own kids. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I, I got my love of investing from my father. My mother and father were very proactive in, in educating me in the ways of the world as far as money is concerned. And so it was very helpful from, uh, from the very beginning. And so when I, you know, when I became a father, that was just one of the things I really wanted to make sure uh, we were able to do for our, for our daughters was to give them that that education because you know a year and a half ago or so I wrote an article in regard to financial edu- financial education and financial literacy in our country and I was kind of taken back by how poorly a job we're doing uh, our schools and states just aren't really pushing it but for me it was just you know my kids take an interest in what I do they come to the Motley Fool and they they like this place and they think it's the coolest thing in the world and they can't believe daddy works at such a neat place what do you do and I'm like well you know I look at stocks all day. That's what we do. And so I, they, they were interested in that. And so it was a way for me just to kind of get them I- at least into it early enough. And we just, you know, we go through companies that they look at that they see every day, companies that are involved with our everyday lives. And we talk about it. Uh, and every quarter, we take a little money and you know, I give them a list of four finalists. And uh, they get to pick the one they want to buy. They have bought five stocks now. They just recently bought Under Armour. And um you know, for me, it's just at eight and seven years old. I mean, my my goal is for them when they turn twenty one, twenty two, uh, to be able to look at this living example of what happened over the course of those fifteen to twenty years. Because to me, we can sit here and talk about it till we're blue in the face. But the older you get, the less you want to hear it. The quicker you want to get rich. Yeah. And I think that really what we found is over time, and and to Andy's point about business focused investing. When you focus on investing in those businesses that are real winners, and you sort of, you know, you hit your hit your wagon to those stars. I mean, a lot of time can go by and can generate a lot of wealth, and uh, and that that was really the goal. Is I wanted my kids to be to be aware of that, and so uh, the lady who wrote the article, Aparna, for the uh, journal, she'd seen the video that, that my uh, my girls and I made upstairs one day, talking about their portfolio, and uh, she called and, and we did an interview and it was just a nice way to kind of get it out there it was it was fun i mean i can't a- emphasize that enough to what jason w- was saying like he was talking about buying businesses of our time and as you go back and look back over the time of history and those great winners um in 20 years when his you know daughters are looking at their portfolio and that's really what we're trying to do here chris is identify these companies that you can buy repeatedly buy i mean i i first learned this education my father, too, taught me about investing. Then I went to work for Tom and David's uncle, um, Gene Gardner, and his partner, Tom Russo, and they taught me this, too, like just buying these companies at various times and continuing to invest in them 
over time. That that really is the key. And so much, especially as we get older, to Jason's point, is you start focusing on trading and trying to outsmart yourself and the uptick this and up down tick that on the stock price. And really, you just lose a, a lot of what you grew up um, learning and what got many of us invested in um, in stocks in the first place. And it's the businesses behind the stocks and trying to create something. And those businesses are really creating something. And you want to invest into that. And the, the word is really investing, not trading. One thing that has gotten better over the last 20 years, certainly uh, investors have so much more in- information at their disposal, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a much greater transparency. You can you can learn about pretty much any public company you want to learn about. One thing that hasn't really gone away, which I kind of thought it would, and and maybe it's just a human nature thing, but the whole notion. This is a little thing, but it, it really hasn't changed at all. The whole notion of people wanting the secret tip, people wanting the you know, and I find this has gone on. For all of my years here at The Motley Fool, you go to a, a barbecue or a cocktail party, you're out with friends or whatever, and it's like, all right, all right what, what do you got? What do you got? <laughs> give, me, give me a little tip. What, do you, what are you buying? And when I say something that is an investment that has worked out well for me over time, like Starbucks or a recent purchase like Chipotle, which are, you know, invariably what I get is not, oh, okay, it's, no, 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 everybody knows about that. Yeah. Everybody, no, no, I want the secret stock. And it's like, you know what? I hate to break it to you. But the secret stock tip almost never works out. It is, to your point, Andy, it is the thing that we look back in time and say, oh, yes, it was there all the time. It was the obvious choice. It was hiding in plain sight. It it was the consumer brand that just kept growing. I mean, and that's the beauty, really, of what we try to do here at The Motley Fool with our newsletters, which is disrupt the newsletter, uh, the stock investing newsletter world, which has been so long dominated by penny stock tipsters and yeah, you know, yeah. get rich Shysters. schemes and all that kind of you know stuff. Um, that's just not the way to build a true, lasting, sustainable, uh, healthy portfolio over time because most people don't care about that. And it takes time to build that up. Um, and if you get started early, to Jason's point, like all of our children, uh, investing for all of our children, that's just that, – that, there's nothing – Super secret about that, Chris. Uh, final story. Uh, we talk about the battle for the living room, and uh, the battle for the living room has turned into a brawl over the weekend <laughs> uh, between CBS and Time Warner Cable. Uh, essentially, what we have here is a, uh, a fight over fees, I believe. Yep. And, and uh, the latest tactic is that uh, Time Warner Cable essentially shut off CBS channels. CBS channels went dark <laughs> in, in little towns around America like New York City, Los Angeles, Dallas, San small, Francisco. Small markets. Small markets like that. Um, I don't know. This is I, I say this as someone who is not a subscriber to Time Warner Cable, so I, I can say this. This is pretty entertaining and, and, and an interesting <laughs> tactic, but I wonder, is this going to work? I feel like if you're Time Warner Cable and you make this move, you – kind of can't back away from it because if you do then you're going to look weak and cbs immediately has the upper hand but i don't know what do you what do you think of this? i mean it sounds i mean it's it's just it's very base form it is just a disagreement right i mean cbs wants x amount of dollars time warner wants to pay y amount of dollars and the problem is right now it looks like cbs is essentially looking for about a hundred percent bump up in the fees um 
Maybe that's too much. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say, really. But it's interesting to see how this kind of all plays out. And it was it, to me, I was I was really fascinated to see that they even went the extra step of cutting off the ability to stream shows via via your, your tablet or whatever. Because one of the things I'm finding very handy is. Uh, I just discovered this with TNT, for example, now. But TV Everywhere is starting to take, take hold with more yeah. channels so that if you have a provider, you can log in and you can watch it wherever you want. And I like that. Uh, you know, it, With CBS, we saw this, this agreement between CBS and Amazon at the very beginning of the year with this new Stephen King series, Under the Dome. Oh, right. And, I mean, I, I've been watching that show. It's pretty entertaining. I like it. If you like Stephen King, it's pretty cool. So I, I could imagine that folks who were watching that and now aren't going to be able to watch it are going to be kind of pissed. But you have the option of going to Amazon Prime four days later and watching it for free, right? Yeah. It's going to be there. So you have that four-day delay. I think that what this is ultimately going to come down to is, I mean, football season's getting ready to kick off here. Yes. People are not going to stand yeah. for this. If they don't reach an agreement, I have a feeling that there will be a lot of people fleeing Time Warner service. And I think they have, what, maybe 12 million, yeah. 12 million or so subscribers it's right the, now? Time Warner Cable is the second, second largest second yeah. cable. Uh, and so, I mean, you're looking at CBS really trying to play that card of being America's number one network. It's, they're going to have to negotiate because the, you know, the bottom line is they could both come out really big losers. Yeah, and that, that's the point. They could both come out as, as pretty big losers. We've seen this kind of over the last couple of years with you know, content providers and cable providers having disagreements on who is paying what and how much that is ultimately going to end up in whose pocket. And that's – to Jason's point, it's all, it's all about fees and distribution. I'm a big believer, and I own I own Comcast stock, and it's done very well. It's more than doubled over the past couple of years. Um, I'm a big believer in content is really what's going to drive so much of the value values in these media companies over the next few years, and uh, that's why Netflix is getting into the content business. Amazon's in the content business. We're seeing Comcast itself buying NBC Universal, get into the content business, spending a lot of money on. The Premier League, the English yep. soccer this year, and they're going to show every single Premier League. So these guys have to come to terms. Um, but if I was um, Time Warner shareholders, I would be a little bit um, worried about this. I was going to say, who's if this is a poker game, wouldn't you rather be holding CBS's cards than Time Warner cables? Because to your point, Jason, we got football season getting ready to start. And just from a reputational standpoint... I would rather have a content provider versus a cable company because cable companies are, for the most part, don't have. I mean, is is it at all surprised to you as a Comcast shareholder that that the stock has done as well as it has when the reputation, just the the consumer surveys that are done, yep. Comcast doesn't have a great reputation. You know, Chris, I was thinking about this the other day um, because I was going on um, CNBC on Friday night, and and Comcast, to their credit, has finally started to see, I think, a little bit of light. That hey, oh my God, we have millions of subscribers who who uh, consider us who hate our very guts. poor. We got to wake up, so we have to get better customer service. I think they've seen that as a type as they as they tend to broaden out their platform from from just the distribution side to also the content side. So I think that's very important. I do think the content providers are really where you want to be at, and that's why I mean Netflix is playing in both both spots. DreamWorks, Scripps Networks, which we which we are all recommendations in Stock Advisor. I think that's the place to be. All right, Jason Moser, Andy Cross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 
That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry, helping us out behind the glass today. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.